0: Welcome to Diffusion, the national science show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced, and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, I'll be looking at brown adipose tissue, more commonly called baby fat. We'll have a look at a fossilised fish who just happens to be pregnant and may lend new clues to how fish used to have sex. Mark West will dust down his plus fours and Pat Ruby will get out of his uh, medicine lab and they will both talk about HIV invasion of human cells and things we didn't know about the solar system. And of course, there will be plenty of mirth and merriment. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore. And first up, we have the news with Patrick Ruby.
1: There is a new theory to explain the shape of our solar system. The asteroids that bombarded the Earth, Moon and Mars in the early history of our solar system might have been tossed aside by Jupiter and Saturn as the giant planets changed their orbits. The discovery was made by graduate student David Minton and Professor Renu Malhotra from the University of Arizona. They used a computer simulation of the orbits of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune and analysed the effect of these orbits on the shape of the asteroid belt that lies between Jupiter and Mars. The asteroid belt has two distinct qualities that have puzzled astronomers for decades, a sharp inner edge and a smeared outer edge, with large holes, called Kirkwood gaps. The model proposed by Minton and Malhotra suggests that the giant planets were closer together about 4 billion years ago and then started to migrate apart. Saturn, Uranus and Neptune moved further away from the asteroid belt. Saturn's orbit wobbled as it moved away, destabilising the orbits of asteroids on the inside of the asteroid belt. As the asteroids were lost into space, the inside edge of the belt eroded away and became sharp. Jupiter, on the other hand, moved towards the asteroid belt. It pushed pockets of asteroids that passed near its orbit out of the belt and created the Kirkwood Gaps. Some of the asteroids lost from the belt might have impacted on the Earth, Moon and Mars and created the 3.8 billion year old craters seen on each of them. The scientists believe the belt might have lost over 60% of its initial number of asteroids because of these movements. In such a scenario, the slower the planets migrate, the more asteroids are tossed aside by the moving orbits. The research has been published in the February 26 edition of the journal Nature. The HIV virus has learnt to evade another component of our immune system, Immune responses directed by a special protein receptor called HLA are less effective in fighting some mutated forms of HIV. HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen. When a cell comes in contact with a virus or any other foreign particle or organism, it can chew bits of that foreign particle up and display it on its surface attached to an HLA molecule. T-cells from our immune system can then recognize the foreign particle on the HLA molecule and mount an immune response against it. Professor Philip Goulder and colleagues from Oxford University discovered the mutated form of HIV that is resistant to HLA-directed immunity. They analyzed the genetic sequence of HIV and polymorphisms of the HLA gene in 2,800 people infected with HIV. Some people contain versions of the HLA gene that were initially more protective against HIV infection. But in this study, people with this protective form of the HLA gene were more likely to have a mutated version of HIV that could evade immune responses directed by HLA. So the virus had evolved to avoid this defence. Previously it was thought that HIV might mutate a little to evade the immune system and drug treatments within a single human host, but did not infect the population in general with these new mutations. The worrying thing about the new discovery is that this particular mutation can be spread within a population. 33 million people globally are infected with HIV, and 25 million people have died since the early 1980s from AIDS when the epidemic started. It can be treated with antiviral medications, but cannot be cured. The study results were published in the journal Nature. And finally, some plants have a bit of animal inside them, in sciencenews.org. The compound bilirubin, which is a breakdown product of red blood cells, a component of animal bile and the stuff that causes the yellow look in jaundice, is being used to make plant seeds look sexy. The discovery was made by Carrie Pirone and her team of researchers from Florida International University in Miami, the U.S. They were studying the white bird of paradise tree, which produces black seeds with bright orange tufts around the seed base, called arils. Perone studied the orange arils using light spectroscopy and chromatography and found the compound in the orange pigment wasn't related to the usual orange pigmented compounds found in plants, called carotenoids. She purified the compound and analyzed it with nmr to discover it was in fact Billy Rubin. Plant biochemist Dean Della Penna of Michigan State University, suggests that haemoglobin in animals and chlorophyll in plants have a very similar ring structure. So in a separate evolutionary process, plants might have evolved to break down chlorophyll into bilirubin in a similar way to how animals evolved to break down haemoglobin into bilirubin. The researchers believe the shocking orange colour might attract birds to the seeds and help spread them. The orange colour doesn't fade easily, and specimens kept in herbariums can continue to glow orange for decades. The findings have been reported in the online journal of the American Chemical Society.
0: Now Mark West continues his chat with Bianca Nogrady from New Scientist magazine about the six biggest unknowns of the solar system. Starting with the fourth unknown, we ask, where do comets come from?
3: Well, what we do know about comets, they're, they're sort of mixtures or agglomerations of dust and ice. They orbit the sun on highly elliptical paths. Um, and we know, at least we thought we knew, that they were actually uh, Kuiper-built objects that are, are tugged from their irregular orbits by Neptune or Uranus, and that sort of slings them into these pathways. But th- the mystery is that the orbits of some comets don't always agree with predictions based on what we think we know about them. So, for example, Comet hale Bob, which last went past in ninety-seven, should be appearing more frequently than it does. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so it suggests that its orbit is, in fact, a lot longer than we think it is, which means that it can't in fact have had its origin in the Kuiper Belt. So then that begs the question of, well, where does this particular comet, comet and some of the other comets with mysterious orbits, where do they come from? Um, so another theory is something co- is that they might have come from something called the Oort Cloud. Again, maybe mispronouncing this, double O-R-T, Oort Cloud. sounds
2: about right to me.
3: Okay, we'll call it the Oort Cloud. So this is a sort of a halo of icy bits that's kind of Huge. I mean, it, it, it's it's. I don't know where it actually starts, but it reaches out about a thousand times further than the outer edge of the Kuiper Belt. So, it, you know, absolutely massive, and it's really it exists on the very edge of our solar system and and further out. And um, here, you know, if comets are coming from here, then it's actually not necessarily planets of our solar system that are influencing these um, these orbits. In fact, the Milky Way and other stars. But we can't see the Oort Cloud because it's too far out. But this raises another question, is if the, um, these kind of long period comets, these comets with these incredibly long orbits, are in fact coming from the Oort cloud, then it suggests that this cloud has a lot more mass in it than we thought. Mm. Uh, so you know, we're looking at trillions of objects that may be a, a kilometre across or larger, which when you put all of that together, you've got a mass several times that of the Earth. And if that amount of material is out there, that then actually throws a spanner in the works in terms of our current ideas about how the solar system formed.
2: Yeah, how did it get there?
3: Well, exactly. How did it get there? And, well, where did it come from? Why is it there? So that way, you know, that then means that we might need to rethink some of our models about the formation of the solar system. So just these, these few little comets that don't quite fit with, with the conventional comet behaviour could throw a complete spanner in the works of uh, our understanding of the solar system.
2: Well, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because there aren't we don't know that much about other solar systems quite yet, which raises the the fifth question of: Is our solar system unique? Can we look to other solar systems to learn about ours, or is ours the only one of its kind?
3: Well, so far it's the only one of its kind that we've found, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only one of its kind in existence, because it's in fact quite difficult to detect other solar systems like ours. Um, I mean, we normally we find planets by the way that their gravity makes their hosts makes their sun wobble as they orbit Uh, and that's how we pick them up because obviously you know our telescopes just aren't powerful enough to to be able to see them but the whereas we can actually see we can see the the change in orbit of the sun but the smaller the planet the smaller the wobble and unfortunately earth is a bit of a lightweight and so the effects on our sun of, uh, of earth is actually too small to detect with current technology, so there may well be a number of suns out there or you know millions of suns out there that have earth sized planets orbiting around them, but we haven't actually got the means to detect where to detect that that kind of telltale wobble. All we can see is um, solar systems that have much bigger planets you know Jupiter and upwards, mm. where you can actually you know that are close to ring you can actually see that effect on on the um on the host star so we may well be unique, but I mean. I can't speak with any authority here, but my gut feeling is I don't think we would be. I mean, this, the universe is a pretty large place. Mm. So you'd like to think that there would, in fact, be other solar systems like ours out there. But uh, at this stage, we just haven't got the technology to be able to detect to detect them.
2: It's the unknown unknowns, isn't it? We don't know what we don't know. Well, that's really. true.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of that out there, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs>
2: The sixth one is quite the morbid one, but also possibly the one that would interest most people. And how will it all end? What's going to happen to our solar system? Is the sun going to explode and uh, devour us all, or I read a little while ago of this proposal to, to use gravitational uh, methods to move the Earth's orbit further and further from the sun so that we could uh, inhabit the solar system as the sun expands. What's going to happen?
3: Well, thankfully, I'd like to say I don't care because it's going to happen about 6 billion years from now. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, in terms of, you know, the sun will die. It, like all good fires, it will run out of fuel and it will die. Um, and at current predictions, that will happen in about 6 billion years. Unfortunately for us, things are going to get ugly long before that uh, because in the meantime, the sun is going to slowly get brighter and brighter and bigger and bigger. So within about 2 billion years, it will be so the heat will be so intense that it will completely kill off life on Earth unless we've found a way to you know live inside the Earth's core. Um, I mean, you, yeah, the one way around that would be, in fact, to somehow tow the Earth out of this the part of the sun, but I suspect the the effects of towing the earth into different orbits and you know, would we bring the moon? And all those sorts of questions I think would probably have far greater effects of uh, on life on this planet than you yeah. know, simply being burned be up easy. in the sun. I
2: think it'd be easier to be living somewhere else. Hopefully in two billion years time we will well, be. Well
3: that's true, I mean we could go to Mars because within you know, in two billion years if to, if it's too hot on earth and chances are Mars might actually be quite pleasant. You know, we might be able to, uh, and, and I suspect within two billion years we will have come and gone on Mars anyway. So um you know Mars may be the the next the next location the next by your property um but also I mean other things could go wrong in the meantime it's not just about the sun we could get unexpected changes in the planetary orbits uh for for example I mean there's about a 2% chance of something like this happen which sounds awfully large to me but mm. you know for example Mars might go too close to Jupiter you know it might alter its orbit and sling it out of the solar system or you know even worse it might sling it straight into us or mercury could smash into the earth it's all sorts of things that could go wrong i mean none of which is going to keep me awake at night thankfully but yeah. <laughs> but certainly all good things must come to an end and uh and our solar system is no exception
2: i guess there's really not much we can do about it at the moment is there
3: well no i mean you know given that most of us have lifespans of you know maximum 100 years i think 2 million or 2 billion sorry is is a long way away to start worrying. You know, I suspect there won't even be any no-grady genes left on the planet by that stage <laughs> to worry about. So, if uh, it, well, if there are, then they're doing mighty well.
2: They've, then they've done their job. The natural selection's worked quite well.
3: Absolutely. I hope they spread out throughout the cosmos.
2: <laughs> well, what do you think? This is not one of the uh, unknown um, solar system things mentioned in New Scientist, but... Is Pluto a planet? Where, where do you lie on this particular debate?
3: Well, I think it should be just because it's got such a funky name.
2: It is a cool name, isn't Pluto. <laughs> it? Pluto. Well, I heard about some, I think they might be Kuiper Belt objects. There's one that's nicknamed. I think it's nicknamed. I'm not sure if it's actually named. One's called Santa.
3: Really? Yeah. There's, and it, and there's an got, object called Santa.
2: And it's got two moons. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure which reindeer they are, but they're named after reindeer. Let's call them Blitz and... and Donna. Donna. Yeah, let's call them that. I, I don't know which two they were. But yeah, there's, a, there's an object called Santa and it has two moons named after reindeers.
3: Fantastic.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean, I, I like the idea of Pluto. I grew up with Pluto. You know, I mean, not that I was one of these. I mean, I think there's actually quite a, a fierce campaign to get Pluto reinstated, which is kind of funny. You think, wow, people get really passionate about really interesting things. Mm. But, um, oh, look, I. I I would like to think that Pluto's still a planet just because that's what I learned in school. And I remember that experiment on the Oval where, you you know, you have different size balls and you have the sun at the centre and then you, you have to pace out how far out each planet is. And, you know, Pluto's all the way out on the edge. And yeah. I probably ended up being Pluto, so I think I have some kind of emotional attachment to it.
2: <laughs> yes, I like astronomers in the way they name things. Yeah, it quite like take some it.
3: imagination.
2: Yeah, good science nerds.
3: Well, I wonder what they were thinking with Uranus, but I'm sure I'm not the first to ask that question.
2: (laughs) No, and, well, I don't know the answer yet. I'm guessing Greek...
0: That was Mark West wrapping up the six unknowns of the solar system with a little bit on Pluto's planetary status. Personally, I think Pluto should be designated some just giant rock garden, but that's just what I think.
2: Lachlan Whatmore on guitar.
0: You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER, brought to you across Australia by the Community Radio Network and podcast across the world.
3: She may be the face I can't forget, a trace of pleasure or regret. May be my treasure or the price I have to pay. She may be the song the summer sings, maybe the chill the autumn brings, maybe a hundred different things within the measure of a day. She...
0: There's a new lady in my life. She's nearly four months old and has a very elegant way of poking her tongue out when being cuddled. Her hobbies include eating, sleeping, squeaking when upset, and biting her mother when being fed she's my brand new friend, Ruby
3: of my dreams a smile reflected in a stream She, may not be what she may seem inside.
0: Ruby, being a mammal like me, has to keep her body temperature within a narrow thermal range to survive. Mammals run their metabolisms at high revs in order to achieve this. We use a lot more energy than exothermic animals, such as reptiles. It wasn't a very warm day when Ruby and I met, but within five minutes of her being deposited in my arms, I started to sweat. Ruby was so warm that I started to worry she might overheat. Babies are incredibly warm for a number of reasons, and today I'd like to talk about baby fat. Infant humans lose heat much faster than adults. There's a simple physical reason for this. Babies have a much greater surface area to volume ratio. In other words, little things have more surface area per unit of their volume than big things. That's why things that are dependent on a large surface area to live, such as living cells which receive their nutrients across a membrane, don't grow very big. It's also why we crush our coffee before we brew it. Crushing a coffee bean doesn't increase its volume, but it certainly increases its surface area and more coffee is dissolved in our cupboards. So babies need to stay warm and one of the ways they do it is to utilise brown adipose tissue, more commonly called baby fat. There are many types of fats in mammalian systems and brown adipose tissue is easily the best one for making heat. Brown adipose tissue, which for brevity I'll now call brown fat, can be found in everybody, but babies have it in the highest concentrations, particularly around their backs. The best way to visualise the action of brown fat is to think of a car with its engine running in neutral. The engine keeps turning over and gets warmer, but the gears are not engaged and the car goes nowhere. It just gets hotter. This uncoupling of the engine from the transmission is, biochemically, the way that brown fat makes heat. As I mentioned, there are different types of fat and brown fat is different from white fat in a number of respects. Significantly, brown fat cells have more mitochondria in them. Mitochondria are small, sausage-shaped structures found inside living cells, and can be best described as the cell's batteries. Inside mitochondria, chemical energy is extracted from energy-rich molecules, such as fats and carbohydrates, and used to make adenosine triphosphate, more commonly called ATP. ATP is the major biochemical source of energy used by pretty much every living thing on the planet. Broadly speaking, the extraction of energy is referred to as electron transport, and the creation of ATP is called oxidative phosphorylation. What brown fat does is uncouple oxidative phosphorylation from electron transport. See, I told you to be simple. Like a car with its engine revving and gears disengaged, the biochemical pathway occurring inside the inner membrane of a mitochondrion reaches a certain place where it meets an enzyme called thermogenin. Thermogenin, also known as uncoupling protein number one, turns the reaction back on itself, and the result is the creation not of ATP, but of heat. And that's why Ruby was so warm when I held her. So I'd just like to take this opportunity to say, welcome to the world, Ruby Kate Saunders. Keep those cuddles coming, darling. Oh, and uh,
1: thanks, Vic. She,
3: she.
0: And finally, Patrick has some rather fishy news for us about fish fossils.
1: Pat, what you got, mate? I certainly do, Locke. Well, I have an insight into the sex lives of fish in the Devonian period. Sweet. Have I pronounced that right? Devonian Very well, period? Devonian period from Devon. Yes. Well, this particular fish, um, the Inciso scutum ritiae, that's the, na- that's the species of the fish. Try saying that 20 times fast. I know. It's um. It's been a specimen at the Natural History Museum in London for a very long time, and they've recently done some new research on it and revised a previous assumption that they had about this fish. Um, they've had several uh, fossils of this fish discovered with bones of smaller fish inside a particular part of their abdomen, and they naturally assumed that that was the last meal that the fish had mm-hmm. before it died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But after further analysis, they found that the bones have appeared in exactly the same spot in each of the fossils. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to revise that theory now by thinking that this particular fish could have given birth to live young mm-hmm. and therefore have had sex yes. instead, okay. of, the instead way, of spawning. Instead of spawning okay. the way that fish normally do, where they release their eggs and then they release the sperm and it just gets gets externally fertilized and mixed up Yeah, Mm. they believe that these particular fish died out towards the end of the devonian period where there was this great devonian carboniferous extinction event Mm -hmm. which killed them off Mm. and they were replaced by fish bony fish and um sharks primitive sharks became the major um predators and the major fish in the sea after this particular period. And I can say from personal experiences, sharks definitely copulate. I actually
0: saw two sharks copulating in the wild once. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Long Lucky time, you. Long time ago. <laughs> it was Hi, very, It was really violent. There, it's, it's, but I'm, I'm going off the subject, but yeah, it's really violent anyway. But so a lot of biting. It's quite Yeah, there stuff. is. It, it, yeah. There is. And the male's got two, well, Not they're not called I penises, know. they're called claspers, and they've actually right. got like hooks on the end so he can hook in. Once he's inside her, he'll hook in and he, she, he won't get out until he's ready. No, she can't throw him out because she'll tear
2: herself. It's very, very misogynistic. Right. Interesting. But I I digress. You digress. And so normal fish, they they spawn like this. Sharks don't?
0: Um, Well, it depends. I mean, some species of shark... Look, I don't know. I believe most species of shark, in fact, pretty much all species of... um, what are called elasmobranchs they're the uh, cartilaginous cartilaginous fish um, will actually copulate um, most species that I can think of here yeah, they've got copulatory organs <coughs> whether or not a shark lays eggs or gives birth to live young can vary from species to species uh, frequently if you go down to the rock platforms around Sydney you'll find tiger shark eggs they look like little seaweeds they're, yeah. um, they're uh, you know, camouflaged that way whereas the white sharks give birth to pups they actually have two long uterine horns along their flanks and they uh, can conceive up to 20 pups but they'll only uh, deliver about four or five because the others the big ones will eat their siblings inside in utero um so yeah.
1: that's vicious goodness me yeah so it's it's wouldn't a tough like world to, to be a shark, shark world. yeah no yeah. first of all wouldn't like to be a female shark female shark <laughs> wouldn't, like, wouldn't like to be a puppy <laughs> having your
0: children <laughs> eating themselves inside you even before they're born yeah, yeah. It's very yeah. alien isn't it it's eaten
2: extremely. from the inside
1: yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: that's, oh well, she, that's she's gory. fine they don't attack the mother they just eat each other that's all so i think The
1: mother's been through enough by the time the pups are out. Yes. Sounds sounds like it, yes.
0: There's not a lot of parental care Yeah, And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us via email at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or you can visit our website, which is www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program were yours truly, Lachlan Watmore, Mark West and Patrick Ruby. Patrick also did the producing and the panelling here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. My name's Lachlan Watmore. Join us for more science next week on Diffusion.